It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. It's this week's edition of the Terry's Talking Podcast. I'm David Campbell, the host, and joining me as he does every week, Mr. Terry Pluto, award-winning columnist from the Plain Dealer and Cleveland.com. Good news, Terry. It's cut-down day, and you and I did not get cut. So I guess we get to stick around for a while. Yes. Yes, it is. And fortunately, I haven't gone through that in several years, but I used to have cut-down day in our <laughs> business when it was layoff time. So, oh, uh, it happens I, far too often. Yes, it yes, did. It does. I bet a lot of people out there listening uh, maybe you can't relate to cut down day in sports, but I bet some of us can relate, relate to it in the various businesses we've worked at. <laughs> All right, well, let's get into the Browns a little bit, and then um, yeah. later on we'll talk. We'll talk some Guardians, and we got an interesting email about a Rookie of the Year candidate that's probably not getting enough notoriety, and we can discuss mm-hmm. that. Uh, but let's get into the Browns first, Terry. We're taping this at 4.30. Cut down time was at 4. The Browns came out with their 53-man roster around 2.30 today. Um, we can talk about Cade York, but what were your initial reactions to what you saw? Any surprises, or was it kind of what you expected? Well, I thought um, it actually was a good sign that they cut um, uh, Tristan Hill and Maurice Hurst. Now, those are two, granted, low price free agents, but nonetheless, free agent defensive tackles that they brought in. And I think they had high hopes that at least one of them would emerge, and they didn't. And rather than just kind of give them the spot anyway, uh, they let them go. Um, and I'm also looking here, and you see, like, they must have been happy with the other defensive tackles because I thought Togia uh, really played very well in the preseason games that I saw. That that was a bit of a surprise for me. I also felt like Togia didn't quite have the size mm-hmm. that they would want to anchor the interior there. And I, I, and with the new guys coming in, I, just, I, I, I wasn't surprised that they let him go. I just I don't see him being a long-term NFL player. Maybe I'm missing something. But um, with the new talent they have, I thought he was on the bubble. Yeah, when you look at the defensive linemen they kept, I mean, Shelby Harris knocked a bunch of these guys out when they brought him in there. Um, I didn't see Alex Wright do that much in the preseason maybe i just missed it but you know he made the team so you have a couple of recent draft picks alex wright and isaiah mcguire made it um agbo there there's area smith harris was tomlinson i mean those are free agents all brought in and uh, how did you think jordan elliott played okay i don't know he didn't really flash a lot to me yeah. but what did, what did you see that's what i mean i didn't notice him yeah 
Um, but he made it. And, and let's be clear, Terry, like we don't, we're not in meetings no. with these guys. We don't see every single practice. We don't see what's going on behind the scenes. A lot of times we're making judgments on what we see at camp and what we see in the game. So there's a lot here that we don't know, but uh, we can weigh in on what we do know. So Exactly. And I'm, I'm interested to see, you know, how the receiving thing plays out. I hope they get the Watkins kid back on the uh, uh, practice squad because I liked him a lot. The, here's the six receivers they kept, the David Bell which is my guy, and I'm hoping one day there'll be a reason for him to be my guy. Uh, Amari Cooper, Marquise Goodwin, that was a surprise that he came back from the blood clots uh, that quickly. Elijah Moore, uh, DPJ, and Cedric Tillman. It's hard for me to bump anybody off of there for Watkins, that's for sure. Yeah, there, there was kind of a debate of whether, how many receivers they'd keep, six or seven. And this all mm-hmm. might change before the opener, but yes. nine defensive linemen and nine offensive linemen and 11 defensive backs. As you always say, Terry, you can never have too many. And especially with Denzel Ward um, dealing with a concussion right now, they need all the depth they can get there. So, And also Greg Newsom gets hurt. We know that. That's Even going back to uh, Northwestern, that was one of his things. I was glad to see Ronnie Hickman made it. Um, and he's um he earned it yeah it's always good to see a you know undrafted free agent uh he and Mahmoud Diabate both made the team and man talk about a guy who really earned his spot like you could see especially during that Eagles game when I think he had seven tackles Mm -hmm. just the way he was flying through holes Uh, Andrew Berry was talking during Saturday's game about how they love his length and his athleticism and he really fits the mold of like a sideline to sideline guy so you kind of figured he was going to make the roster, but uh, it's hard to do that. It's an undrafted guy, and, and he did. Because it's easier to say, well, maybe we can get him on this practice squad, or I want to make sure that we take another good look at whatever player they were drafted. For example, you know, David Bell made the team over Watkins. Uh, we took Bell in the third round. I want to see a little more of that before we let him go. Uh, but now we we are seeing, too, some of the draft picks have been let go. Remember that for a while as Andrew Berry would never get rid of the draft pick. Well, um, Demetric Felton was let go, and I just can never particularly warm up to him as a player. Well, if you're like me, Terry, there's some guys you watch, and it's like, wow, they would have a hard time replacing that. Yeah. And with Demetric Felton, like every time you saw him play, it's like, well, they could replace that pretty easily, and – so he's gone. So like that that was that was not a surprise to me to see him yeah. not make yeah. the cut. Well, you know, we're really talking about back end of the roster guys. So um kind of I think that's sort of enough of that uh for for this podcast. But I'm uh, I will be interested to see what happens now uh with the kicking because uh, uh Dustin Dustin Hopkins he actually he is a good Example for Cade York. Hopkins was a draft pick by Buffalo in 2013. Never kicked in a game. Got cut at the end of that season. Picked up by New Orleans. Thrown on a practice squad in 14. Never kicked in a regular season game. It wasn't until 15, his third year in the NFL, that he actually made it to the regular season. And then he made the team in Washington and stuck and stayed there. And so from 15 on, he's been an NFL kicker. And he obviously must not have been ready when he first came out, but he made himself ready later on. 
All right, so let's reset this a little bit, Terry. We, we've talked a lot about kickers on this podcast. It was the right move, you think, to get to put to cut Cade York and bring mm-hmm. in a veteran, right, Dustin Hopkins? We talked about this last week about how bringing in a veteran, one way or another, was the right move. So you agree with that? Oh uh, um, yeah. And you also like Dustin Hopkins in terms of trading a seventh round pick and bringing in someone who's been around. And the, the thing about it, Terry, is like, man, you watch that game Saturday. Every time oh. Cade York was on the field, it was like a little mini drama like he's gonna he's gonna he's gonna tweak his foot on somebody who's diving to block the kick he's gonna have it blocked he's gonna there's always something when he would go out there and even after the game it's like i want to be a weapon i want it it's it's you need a guy who can just go out there make the kick and go back to the bench and like not have it be a thing and every kick was a thing it just seemed like it, it built all training camp because he just Remember, he missed, his, I believe, his first two 40-yarders. And from there, it was all eyes were on him, and I think he felt it. Um, and there's an example there of I've never seen a Browns kicker with a stronger leg than Cade York. I mean, he there is a different sound when he kicks the ball. And look, he kicked a 58-yarder to win a game uh, a year ago. So there has that talent there, but it, so much of kicking – is is accuracy and composure. Um, now, like with Hopkins, for example, the thing to keep in mind, he does not have uh, anything approaching a Cade York strong leg. I don't think we're going to see 55 or 58-yard field goal attempts. Uh, for his career, he's only 50% on 50-yard field goals, uh, which to me actually is not a bad gamble. If you, if you look at it that way, that's a bit of a lottery ticket. If you're counting on it to win the game, um, then it's a different situation. And you compare that Phil Dawson was over 70%. I think Justin Tucker's like, uh, of course, who's the, the kicker of all kickers, like 81%. We're talking about from 50 yards out. So, uh, but he's very good. He's all like 80% on those 40 to 49 yarders. And for his career, Tompkins is like 84.5%, which is slightly above. I mean, the average NFL kicker is making like 83% of his kicks now. Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. The, I, mean, I think, it, you know, David, um, don't ahead, you Terry. think, too, because it's gotten so good, it's like people just expect every kit to, kick to be made? Well, that's what it's become. And, I mean, it's Justin Tucker's fault, <laughs> basically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, you watch that guy, you don't even have to think about it. It's it's going through, like, every time. But, uh, you know, what, there were two things that kind of came to mind when the Cade York thing went down yesterday. And the first one, I thought, was um, – Browns fans are going to be griping when he goes somewhere else and has an amazing career. And like, that's, that's what it is. And that is probably going to happen. And I think Browns fans should be okay with that because this is not, this is not like a crappy team that is going to be building for three years that can wait for Cade York to grow into the role. Like this is it. This is Deshaun Watson's second year. Miles Garrett's in his prime. This offensive line is highly paid and ready to go. Nick Chubb is not getting any younger. It's like it's go time, and you can't be sending a guy out there to kick a 43-yarder with the game on the line who's going to be all in his own head trying to overanalyze everything. Um, So that was the first thing I thought of. It's like I think he's going to go somewhere else and do really well, and Browns fans are going to have to be okay with that. You know Cleveland fans – fans terry they always looking like oh why did they let that guy go why did they let this guy go he's going to come back to haunt us and all this stuff but i think you have to be okay with this one because that's that's what it is the time is now and they need somebody they can count on so dustin hopkins is the guy 
actually most of them are like, get him out of here. I can't watch him anymore. <laughs> and then two years later, when he's good somewhere, how do they ever let this guy go? <laughs> I mean, so right. let, let's get real. I mean, that's and that's the fan and media nature in all of us. I really believe Andrew Barry was plotting a move like this for a couple of weeks. He was waiting to see what kicker he could get. And he wanted it to be a guy who was at least an average NFL veteran kicker when it seemed that uh, York was being shaky. And the Browns adopted the policy, which is, you know, he's he's my kicker until he's not. There was no doubt uh, expressed at all until, I think it was Sunday, uh, Stefanski finally kind of threw it upstairs. We have to talk about it. Probably knowing that this deal was in place for Hopkins and it was going to happen. The Hopkins situation tells you you could be a really good kicker in the NFL, but if they think you're making too much money, they'll get rid of you anyway. By the way, that was Phil Dawson's situation. Uh, they didn't want to pay him after 2012, and they wanted to just cut the salary cap, even though they had a lot of salary cap room. That was a Joe Banner decision. Let Phil go and ended up bringing in Billy Cundiff, who actually had a pretty good year that first year. Nonetheless, the Browns have not had the same kicker go through two consecutive seasons since Phil left. Uh, I counted 11 different names, and Cody Parkey was here twice. So they've just been shuffling the deck and shuffling the deck. Okay, to go back to salary cap situation, um, Hopkins was set to make $3 million this year on the cap for the Chargers. This kid, Cameron Dicker, came in. Dicker was a, sort of their practice squad backup guy last year as a rookie. Uh, Hopkins, I believe, pulled a hamstring. And after the sixth game he went out, Dicker took over and kicked 19 out of 20 field goals. So they went into camp, had a competition, and um, they saw Dicker still making field goals. And he's making seven hundred grand or whatever it is, a rookie contract. And we can uh, move uh, uh, Hopkins out get him off the cap and uh, pick up a draft pick and all for it. And, of course, if I had heard the Browns had had a chance to get a veteran kicker like Hopkins but didn't want to trade a seventh-round pick or pick up the $3 million salary, I mean, we would just be screaming on this podcast right now. But I, I, Small I price think, to pay. Yeah, I think he was really setting himself up. And I also believe they wanted to bring in a guy who was in training camp as opposed to somebody who's, like, kicking on his old high school field. Which, by the way, I've heard that story told to me a couple of times, like by Billy Cundiff and Greg Joseph. And it seems like there was one other kicker like that. You know, these guys that the Browns had brought in when things were, uh, when there were problems. And they, you know, they were at home. All right, Terry. Well, I said there was two things that I was thinking about, um, about Kate York, and we can move off the kicker thing. But Stephen Means, our colleague, wrote a really nice feature today on Travion Henderson, the Ohio State running back. And if you follow the Buckeyes at all, you'd know that Travion Henderson had a really rough 2022. He was injured. His foot was bothering him. He couldn't perform the way he wanted. People started doubting him. He was going to maybe transfer at one point. And this was like a five-star running back. And he finally like went home to Virginia, hung out with his high school track coach, hung out with his friends, kind of re-centered, and he, like, he's ready to go this year. And I'm thinking that's what Cade York mm -hmm. needs to do is just like get out of it. It's a high-pressure situation he's been in. Get out of it, reset, come back, and you know hopefully he'll have a great career somewhere. And that's okay. So hopefully this is the beginning for him. I'm sure he'll get picked up. And uh, like you said, he's got a great leg. So I'm and sure he'll Browns land somewhere. Browns apparently were 
you already have or are planning to offer him a practice squad uh, position. If I were him, I would not take it. I would try to yeah. get to a different team. Uh, you got to get out of here. Yeah, it, a new start it, is in order for yes. sure. And if you, that means you got to go home for a while and wait. He he's good enough that other people will want to look at him certainly on their practice squad. But I mean, it's a it's a crazy league when you look at a couple of years ago. I think they were going to open the season with Cody Parkey, and he got hurt right before. Uh, the first game or second game of the season. I forgot which game it was, but it's early. And that's when Chase McLaughlin ended up kicking. He ends up having like, uh, ranking like almost like Cade York, like 30th out of 33 kickers and field goal conversions. So he's let go. York is brought in. The Colts pick up McLaughlin, and he has a really good year for them, very solid down the middle. Now, granted, he was kicking in the dome as opposed to the weather, because if you look at his stats from back in 21, he was very good in the first half of the year. When the weather got cold and the wind blew, he had problems. Cade York wasn't just weather. It was everything. See, that's the other situation that uh, was was a problem. So I know the Browns wanted a guy that this said, if he misses it, you don't feel he's going to miss the next three. And that's where they were at. So, All right, Terry, let's move on to Deshaun Watson. Uh, what have you seen from him so far, and are you feeling good, bad, or kind of unsure about things going into the opener against the Bengals on September 10th? I'll let you be the leadoff man on that. Uh, I've seen a lot of good things, and one of the things I'm interested in, Terry, and I don't know if you've noticed this, um, I, I read some stuff from Warren Sharp, who's a football analyst, and he pointed out, the Browns have been in an empty backfield with Deshaun Watson like over 43% of the time in the preseason mm. when he lined up. Mm. And that's like almost twice as much as any of the other starters have played in empty. And I started thinking like, all right, that might mean nothing. It might just mean they want him throwing the ball like they know he can hand off to Nick Chubb. Like that's pretty easy stuff. So they want to make sure he's getting reps in the passing game. But when Deshaun Watson talks about like everything is new, like are we going to see – more empty formations, and I've, I've really seen him throw some good passes, and I've seen him throw some not-so-good ones. So I don't know what to expect. I think he's going to be better than last year right off the bat, and I think he's going to get better week by week. But that's kind of where I'm at. All right, what about you? It's always difficult because when a player like Watson didn't play for uh, 700 days, then played six games, and I would say five of them were mediocre to poor, um, you really want to just see him play more football, but they're all panicked about him getting hurt. So he played, I think, barely a half of football if you were to roll everything together. And it was just hard. I mean, I loved how he connected on that long pass to Amari Cooper where he bolted out of the pocket and had a pretty good idea where he was going to his left. Cooper read it, and they were connected. There was a really nice pass I think he threw early on uh, I think it was to DPJ, and there First were some snap. other, yeah, there yep. were some nice throws, um, and then there were some others that just kind of seemed disjointed. But he didn't look like he had the totally happy feet and kind of clueless like he had some of those games. So I was encouraged by that. I, I just think it's going to be difficult for him though uh, to get off to a fast start. I'm with you. He's going to be better than last year. He just needs to play. 
And they can't, I don't, I've seen enough of this, you know, seven on sevens and the pseudo touch football they play when it's 11 on 11. I get why they do it. But, and you know, certainly the last thing you don't want is Deshaun Watson getting, you know, whacked in a practice. Uh, or even like he throws a pass and hits his thumb on the helmet uh, of a guy rushing, not even trying to tackle him. That happened to Tim Couch, by the way, um, and ended up with a broken thumb on his throwing hand. So um, that's we. He just needs to play. Yeah, I do think you're right, Terry. Week by week, I think we're going to see some progression. And you know how it is in football. They had different receivers rolling through, different offensive Like So much in the preseason is like who's in, who's out, mm-hmm. who's dressing, who's not. And when they get the same five linemen and the same rotation at, at running back and same rotation receiver, I think things are going to settle in a little bit for him. And we probably won't see it in week one. So. Um, all right, I want to ask you two questions, Terry. I'm going to have like a really off-the-wall answer to one, but um, I want to ask you, who do you think is going to be the most important player this season on the offense who's not Deshaun Watson or Nick Chubb? If you have to pick one player on the offense that you think kind of holds the key to the season, who would that be for you? The easy answer would be Amari Cooper, but I'm going to go with DPJ. I think he has mm. a big year. I just do. And also, given where they are with special teams, he may end up being a guy that is running punts and kicks back. And he's done it in the past. And he ran one back for a touchdown. So um, I think he's set up to have a breakup year. All right. Well, I'm going to cheat a little bit. Well, he might not be the most important guy, but I think he's going to be an important guy. And this is a little crazy, Terry, but I really think DeWan Jones – is going to figure into this team at some point. And I'll tell you why. I don't know that Jack Conklin is going to play 17 games. I mean, he hasn't recently. I think he's going to get nicked up. And I think Dewan Jones can play a couple of different places on that offensive line. And he gives the Browns something they don't have and haven't had at one of those tackle spots, which is just a huge, huge guy with great feet, who's very hard to get around and can mash people run blocking. Like, you know, I know he's not a starter right now, but there's a reason that they've drafted him and kept him. And he's, he's something different. I mean, people are talking about the Browns having different kind of receivers. He's a different kind of lineman. He's a masher and he's huge. And I I just think he's going to find a role and he's going to help hold that offensive line together at some point this year. So I'm crazy. I'm, I know I'm going like off the board here a little mm-hmm. bit, but I, if you watch his snaps during preseason, he's just nobody's getting within five feet of the quarterback anytime they try to pass rush on him. It's well, been they, really impressive, and it's all second string guys. But I've been impressed with him so far. We've seen we've seen young players look bad against uh, second or third string guys. I was surprised actually. Conklin's played a little more than I thought in Cleveland. In 2020, he played 15 games. He missed one. So now in 21, when they were playing 17 games, he missed 10. See, last year, I thought he only played about 10. He played 14. If they can get 14 games out of this guy, uh, that would be, I think, reason for celebration. Then it rolls into whether it was DeWan Jones or or Hudson. Uh, Somebody's got to hold up at right tackle because he will miss some time. And then, you know, is Jedrick Wills really any good? I mean, 
Dewan Jones is a different type of player. And if you watch on pass rush, rush sets, even in the, in the preseason, like Jedrick Wills is getting bull rushed straight mm-hmm. back. He, d- he doesn't have the base that Dewan Jones had. I, I think, I think Dewan Jones is going to push him for playing time by the end of the season. I, that's like a really crazy prediction. <laughs> I know, but I just think he's something different. And you put him with Bill Callahan for weeks and weeks on end, I think we're just going to see him evolve into someone who can really contribute. So there's a reason he played all those snaps in the preseason. That's for sure. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So, all right, Terry, how about we take a break here? Um, When we get back, we're going to talk about an email we got about a guardians rookie of the year candidate. And should he be getting more notoriety? So we'll get into that when we get back on Terry's talking. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. All right, we're back on Terry's Talking. Terry, before I forget, I want to mention your weekly newsletter, which comes out on Mondays, and you can get everything Terry wrote for the entire week in your mailbox. Um, it's free. So just go to cleveland.com slash newsletters and just click on the Terry's uh, Terry Pluto newsletter, and you'll get it once a week. It's free. It literally takes like one minute to sign up. You just drop your email in. So, all right, Terry, let's get into the Guardians. I Speaking of um, – Reader interaction. We have a letter here from Tom J. And he says, hey, David and Terry, why are all the Cleveland press outlets in the Guardians front office not promoting Tanner Bybee for rookie of the year? Look at the numbers. Look at how Bybee approaches pitches each game. He should be getting more notoriety. Thanks for that, Tom. What do you think, Terry? Bybee for AL rookie of the year. Can you make a good case for him? Well, now I have just Annie up and say I have not done the research to see who else would have been in con- contention for that. Uh, I've done a lot of looking at Bybee's thing, and the impressive thing is um, in, since July 1st, he's made 10 starts. He's never thrown fewer than five innings. Um, I see only two starts total this year for him uh, where he's pitched fewer than five innings. And that's just remarkable for uh, a young pitcher in the era where what they do is they're so you know worried about people's pitch counts so in other words out of his 21 starts 19 of them he went at least five innings um, and that's that's significant because we've seen games where like Logan Allen or Gavin Williams are pitching pretty well but they're at 90 some pitches in the fourth inning and they pull the plug that's it so this guy's been able to, to get around that. Um, you know, it's exciting to see him uh, do what he's doing. I remember hearing that um, 
he was the next Bieber for them, kind of like that. You know, he has sort of the poise. I'm not saying he's exactly like Bieber. Remember how Bieber just came up to the big leagues and just looked like he belonged. In fact, this guy's actually had a better first year than Bieber. Uh, so, but sometimes pitchers give you a, a real feel for uh, are they confident? You know, are they throwing strikes when they get behind in the count? Uh, are they, you know, are they looking, basically looking over their shoulder to be taken out of the game, whatever it is. And that certainly has not been this guy at all. It just shows you how hard uh, it is to get guys to throw five to six innings. That's why, you know, for example, the Guardians and Noah Syndergaard in here for a, a month plus. Just Can he stagger through five innings? Because you can't find guys to do it. Well, Tanner Bybee has done way more than that. Let's run through the numbers real quick, Terry. And then I do have a couple of names that I think he'd be up against. And I, now that we're getting in, you know, near September here, I, I think some of these award lists are going to start popping up. And I think mm-hmm. you're going to see him on them. But uh, you know, Bybee's 10 and 3, 21 starts, 119 and two-thirds innings. He's given up 107 hits, 40 earned runs, and he struck out 117 guys with 37 walks. Yep. And his his whip is 1.20, and his ERA is 3.01. I mean, yep. that's pretty impressive. Um, just as a side note here, he's thrown 47% fastballs, about 8% curveballs, 28% sliders, and 15% changeups. So who's he going up against? Um, I, I was trying to think of who might be at the top of this list, and one guy that – I think at the beginning of the season, this Josh Young from the Rangers, he was mm-hmm. known as you know one of the top prospects in baseball. But he's been out, I think, for most of the last month. Uh, I think with a, I think he broke his thumb, so he might not finish in a way that'll let him you know win the award. But I think the main competition is Gunnar Henderson from the Orioles. Uh, you know, he's batting two fifty one, twenty two homers, sixty five RBIs. He's slugging four seventy nine. And has a 329 on base percentage. So I'm trying to do the math real quick. That is seven. That's almost 800 OPS for a rookie. And the thing that I think is really going to work in Gunnar Henderson's favor over over Bybee is that the Orioles are in first place and they're going to be in the playoffs. And I think voters do look at that, like how how much of an impact are you having on your team's fortunes? And Gunnar Henderson has that going for him. But boy, if you look at the stats, man, there's not much to choose here mm-hmm. between between Bybee and Gunnar Henderson. I think that's I think it's going to be like a 1A, 1B type of thing, depending on how things close. And if Bybee has a good last month of the season, he could be right there, I think, right? Sure. Uh, although, to your point, the Orioles rise, which they are a feel-good story. Uh, Henderson will play into that. I went to, to look up Bieber, uh, Bieber as a rookie, which is 2016. I'm sorry, excuse me, 2018. And... Uh, he wasn't as good as I thought he was. He was 11 and five with an ERA of 4.55. Yeah, 2019, he went 15 and eight with a 3.28. And um, yeah, so that that was what he was. All right. Well, and we'll so, see how that rookie of the year thing comes that, together. Well, it's, my I think point he's got being, a case. Yeah, and my point being, this guy's actually been not saying he's going to be better than Bieber all the way along, but he is off to just such an amazing start. And, you know, I'm still upbeat on, on Gavin Williams, and I'm upbeat on uh, Logan Allen. I know Curry got knocked around, but uh, I like him too. I mean, we'll see whether he's uh, going to be the bullpen or starting. Uh, but I do know that they want to 
keep him in the rotation. Curry is who I'm talking about there. They've told me that. Um, no, everything's subject to change. But when you're grasping for Daniel Norris and everything else, you know, this, that's why they decide to get rid of uh, Syndergaard. Of course, Syndergaard, how about 10 home runs in 33 innings? Yeah, that was in some big in some big moments too. But yeah. you know, uh, P- Paul Hoynes just put up a a post about why do you think the Guardians went to Norris last night? It's one of the biggest games I don't know of the season. They're trying to keep their playoff hopes alive, and that's who they went with. I thought Hoynes made a really good point there out of that. Uh, very curious decision, right? Who else, do you have any other suggestions? Let's go to Eli Morgan earlier or something. Yeah, or, or bring somebody up. Like, I think the way the rotations in Columbus had gone, maybe some guys weren't available. But, like, it's it's one of the biggest games of the season, and it just it just seemed odd. He has nothing. David, Daniel Norris, by big league standards, has nothing. He's thrown a mid to 87-mile-an-hour fastball with um, – I mean, he keeps being cut and brought back. And uh, I don't really – know what they were hoping to steal an inning or two out of out of that i and we we live in this whole world of baseball where they're just terrified of pitchers being hurt they baby them more than ever and it seems like there are more on the injured list than ever you you just about every team they play you hear well they got three starters on the injured list so we actually have a question on that, Terry, from Doug yeah. Meredith in Akron. He says, hey, Terry, what do you think about the emphasis on limited pitches and innings for pitchers, especially young pitchers? Bob Feller must be rolling over in his grave. <laughs> Bob Feller, Bert Blylevin. I mean, these guys, I mean, I remember when um, Blylevin came up for the Hall of Fame, and I was kind of like, oh, you know, I mean, he was really good, but not this. and um Sheldon Oker for the Beacon Journal, the baseball writer, was talking with me, and he was making the case for Blylevin and Jack Morris. And he goes, recently, look at that. These guys are throwing 10 to 12 complete games a year. Now, this is not 1901. You know, this is 1980s, you know, early, even even in the early 90s. And they're throwing 10 to 12. Teams don't throw 10 to 12 complete games, period. And... I know those guys just look at this and shake their head. Uh, recently, he just retired. I forgot who he was scouting for. I think it was Texas. Mike Paul is his name. He was a pitch for the Indians back in the 60s. He was a pitching coach for several teams and then a longtime major league scout. Close friend of Tito Francona, too, Terry Francona. They, so he was in town, by the way, when all the stuff about the Francona not coming back. And so we were talking to him, and he was on the same thing about – you know, what are we teaching? He says, I, I, I was, he goes, this is for sure. He's not scouting. He said, I was scout these class a games and three, four innings. They pull them out. In fact, the game that I was at or to two games rather that I were, that I watched where I was about to chase the water at, uh, uh, in the Midwest Lake class, eight Lake County, both teams are doing that four, four, four innings and you're out of there. And, I guess it's just worried about the the pitch count. I don't know. Because he said that, do they know how much of a difference 80 pitches is versus 100? Now, there's some stats when you start throwing 115 or more uh, correlation to arm injuries. But they're not necessarily 90 versus 100 versus 80. 
At least that's what Mike Paul said. So, and he just recently was in the game. Mike, by the way, for the, those of us who are listening, remember seeing a pitch for the Indians. He's now 78. I don't mean to make you feel old, but uh, <laughs> but he is. Yeah, that doesn't even include all the warm-up pitches. Do they monitor yeah. warm-up pitches for these guys? I mean, you watch them, they're warming up for half an hour, and, and, uh-huh. and Trevor Bauer used to throw the ball from one foul line to the other. It's a warm-up. It's like that's not even included in your that pitch That is count. the so one like, thing I liked about Trevor Bauer, not that. Remember his famous line, I am at war with pitch counts. <laughs> oh, the spirit of Bob Feller lives on. So Yes, he was. All right, Terry. Um, so the Guardians are now seven games out in the division. They're playing the Twins again tonight, and uh, it's going to be tough for them to get back into that thing. But we do have a few more questions we can get into. But first, I, I wanted to get your thoughts. Um, you know, we've been looking for Oscar Gonzalez and Gabriel yeah. Arias to come up and get some chances. What do you think of how things are going? It's It hasn't been... I think what the guardians expected, but they're getting a look at these guys and really getting some data on them. What do you think about those two guys and how they're playing? Well, you know, we were on the free SpongeBob. Well, we've let him out and he's up here and he's trying to uh, basically buy himself a ticket back to Columbus because there's just no pop in his bat. I don't know what happened to him. I just don't. It isn't just, I mean, he was swing at stupid pitches last year and then turn around on the next pitch and hit a double. Uh, he was like Mr. Double. And this year, ugh. So I I have to get off of the bus. I have to leave the SpongeBob bus. I just, but I think it was important for them to take a look at this to see if they could get him back going. Arias is a brilliant defensive shortstop. His arm is magnificent. Uh, he's got great range. Uh, and, Tom Hamilton and I were talking about this, and Hamilton brought it up. He goes, I think he's the best third, third baseman on the team. He's the best shortstop, and he's the best first baseman. He goes, I'm sure he's good at second base, but we don't see him there. But he said he is tremendous defensively wherever you put him, and he wasn't even all that bad in the outfield. But his hitting is strange. I mean, he he has a powerful bat, as we've seen, but he strikes out. You know, I think in August he struck out like 30 times in 70 at bats, and he's like hitting 208 or something. Um, but see, his defense—that's why Terry Francona keeps saying there's a good player in there somewhere. I mean, the athleticism, the defense show, and at least when he is playing defensively, he does help you even when he's killing you at the plate. You know, where Oscar's just—I mean, Oscar's just a so-so right fielder and that. So, um, to me, that. It's been disappointing, and you know, Rocchio came up, and he was okay, but I think he had 250. None of these guys are grabbing onto these opportunities that they're getting. Yeah, and just Oscar's plate discipline must have been better in Columbus. I mean, I, yeah. last week, if he's facing Clayton Kershaw, right, Hall of Famer <laughs> for sure, yeah. starts he takes a fastball right down the middle on pitch one, and then Kershaw just walks him up the up the ladder yeah. on the next two pitches, and Oscar's swinging at a pitch up it over his shoulders uh, for strike three. And I'm like, how did he have better production in Columbus if that was the approach? And like, just just I know it's a lot more pressure being up here and trying to hold your job, but you, the plate discipline has to be there if you're going to hit well for him. And man, it was it was just a that one at bat just kind of showed me that this that just encapsulated the whole season for him to me. Fraconas would say last year that he had never quite seen anybody swing as many bad pitches as Oscar, and then turn around in the same at bat and recalibrate. In other words, he would 
say, oh, that was a stupid pitch. That's outside. And they throw another one to try to get him to do it, and he wouldn't swing at it. This year, it's like the ball's not even out of his hand, the pitcher's hands, and he's decided he's going to throw, going to swing. And it, the sports are different, but you could take a look at what happened to Cade York. It just shows the confidence end of it. And what's happened to Oscar? I mean, you don't have the kind of stats Oscar's had in the minors in his career if you're just hopeless at the plate as he's looked up here. So it, it, it is purely mental. And um, we'll see. By the way, you see my, uh, Manzardo's uh, started to play at, at AAA. So I want to see how that comes out. He's he had a, I think he's two for seven his first two games. So, but you, you know, if you're – we're in that point now. Like you said, you're seven games down. We're walking into September. Um, last last week, uh, we talked about Chase DeLauder. I went to see him. Um, so now we'll start looking at something like Juan Brito and some of these other guys. Good, yeah. And uh, Manzardo will get it like a full month uh, to yeah. kind of get his form back after being hurt. So, All right, Terry. Um so we've got a few Hey Terry questions here. Some of them are Guardians related, but I thought we'd kind of wrap up with a few of those. And again, before I forget to mention it, if you want to send us a comment, email, um, something funny or an observation, you can email us at sports at cleveland.com and just put Hey Terry or Terry's talking in the subject line and we'll try and get it on next week's podcast. So uh, you want to handle a few of these? Oh, sure. All right, here we go. This one, this first one is from Neil Hausch from Akron, Ohio. And he says, Hey Terry. Stephen Kwan has had 521 at-bats with 60 strikeouts. In 2022, he had 563 at-bats and 60 strikeouts. He's essentially matched his strikeouts from last year with a month of games remaining in 2023. Terry, is this a product of the Guardians' strategy for Kwan to be more aggressive swinging the bat in the leadoff spot or Kwan simply being less patient at the plate? Thanks. And again, that's from Neil in Akron. So thanks for that, Neil. I think they're, they're, they do want to be a little more aggressive. And also for a while, when he uh, was struggling a couple months ago, they were busting him inside with all these uh, uh, fastballs or even right-handed tough sliders on the fist. So they wanted him to get out in front of the ball and pull it more. Uh, so, But sometimes when you do that, uh, it's going to lead to a little more strikeouts. But he's still only striking out, what, every eight times at bat. I don't think it's a, an issue at all. Quan's had a nice year. It's not as good as last year, but he's still uh, a good leadoff man because, you remember, you're throwing in elite defense with him in left field. And he plays all the time, plays hard all the time. And he's the kind of guy that I think his third and fourth year could be even better because unlike um, Oscar, who got worked over and just folded, you know, they worked Quan over. Uh, they did it during his rookie year, and he, and he adjusted, and they did it again this season, and he didn't fall apart. And in 129 games, batting 267, uh, 334 on base percentage, and a 374 slugging percentage. So not, like you said, not last year, but uh, a lot of teams would take that. A lot of teams would take that. Yeah, so. especially given the uh, the defense. Because, you know, he, this is a guy who was a natural center fielder. You know, they've talked about using Brennan in, in, in center field next year or whatever. You know, they could put Quan in center field, if they, depending upon what who they traded for, who came up, all those those things. All right. Uh, this one is from Neil in Jamestown, New York, and he says, Hey, Terry, on Pat Corrales' passing, he was one of my favorite hot-headed managers of all time. 
I remember him going into a rage and pulling bats out of the rack and throwing nearly every bat in the dugout onto the field. He was a great baseball character. I also associated him with with Ernie Camacho, the closer, going out to the mound and poking him in the chest to drive home his point. For his own health, it was probably the best that he settled into coaching duties with the Braves. That's from Neil in Jamestown, New York. Uh, you got any good Pat Corrales moments to pass along, Yeah, because I, I covered him. I was on the beat. This is... Uh... Hoynes came on towards uh, the end, but I was there from the beginning with with Corrales. And, well, I remember, speaking of throwing things, he had the job about a week. We walk in the locker room, and there was food everywhere. He would get mad and kick over the spread. Then another time, because the first year, he reminded me of a guy who took over the classroom. Mike Ferraro had been the manager, and Mike had in spring just been hired from the Yankees. He was a coach and had been diagnosed with kidney cancer and had kidney cancer surgery and removed the kidney. He just was not himself. Um, and so I remember one time, the last game Ferraro managed was in Kansas City. All right, so the first guy gets on for the Royals. The next guy hits a ground ball. The try pulls a double play. And the entire infield runs off like it's a three or third out. Remember, there are only two batters into the game. So <laughs> Sheldon uh, Oker, who was covering for the Beacon Journal, I'm covering for the Plain Dealer. We go into Corral, uh, um, so, excuse me, Ferraro's office, and he's sitting there like playing solitaire with cards. And he says, sometimes I feel like we're in the traveling circus. We're like the Washington generals just there for the, and he would flip a card down to make each point. You know, we're just here for entertainment purposes. Oh man. How can you run off the field when we've only had two batters? (laughs) Sheldon and I rate this and he got fired the next day. Gay Paul and, and, Here's how we found out. So I remember. Oh, so that was one of the reasons. That was the day was, after that, that, huh? They fired no him. No kidding. So we show <laughs> up, and he must have been thinking about doing it anyway because they had Corrales, who had just been fired by Philadelphia, on the string, so they brought him in. Now, Pat looked at all this and realized the team was undisciplined. And so he was like, you know, uh, the guy that went into the tough classroom with the big stick. And so he's he's knocking food tables over. He's making guys come in at two thirty and three to like learn how to do infield defense and bunts, all this stuff. Um, he was uh, he was actually a guy that liked stolen bases and bunting. He would he tried some of that kind of the fundamental ball, and he did give them what they needed, which was a sense of order and control the rest of the season. And I liked him. And they also knew that he wasn't afraid to fight. I mean, Paul Hoynes actually wrote the same story that I remember. Maybe Hoynes was there with me because this one time we're sitting with him in a restaurant and he goes, you know, sometimes I just get, I just get into fights. Like, I don't know how they happen. What do you mean, Pat? He says, like this one time I'm in this bar. This guy comes up, he sticks his hand right in my pizza, right in my pizza. He puts his hand. I said, what happened? He goes, I got cold cocked. him. what'd you do? A guy puts a hand in your pizza. You know, and he had other sides like, well, why was somebody putting his hand? I didn't quite get it. And <laughs> so he um, he done, but he I think that the players that were serious about the game realized that behind 
the bluster and fire, Pat was a very good baseball man. And of course, he became the top lieutenant for Bobby Cox in Atlanta for years. Uh, I loved him. He had a, because, uh, um, you know, I had broken in in 79 covering Earl Weaver. Uh, and Weaver had fire about him, too. And then I came to Cleveland to the point where I had David Garcia, who was sort of everybody's grandfather. Then poor Mike Ferraro, who was just shell-shocked. He'd come from the Yankees and then become ill. So Corrales, to me, was like, okay, uh, the principal's back, you know, and adults in the room, whatever you are. Now, he's fiery, but they needed that. So there like you the go. the old scene from uh, Bull Durham where he's like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And Kevin Costner says, go in and scare him. Scare him, <laughs> yeah. And he starts throwing bats in the shower and everything yeah. else. But I remember one time we went in. This is It might have been the second year. And we're we're not even in the June, and now it's the third time the food's on the floor. And I did say to Sheldon Oker, because we were like the only two traveling, they go, well, how many times can you do this? How many times can you throw them in? That sort of loses its – you would go and you see ravioli all over the place. And it was, <laughs> so anyway. Uh, you don't see, uh, no, you don't don't see, see characters that like anymore. that anymore in the no. age of analytics and no. uh, button-down no, front office and everything. It's it's a little bit sad in some ways. So, Well, thanks for that letter. And um, we have actually one more from Neil in Jamestown, New York, that I saved from last week, Terry. So we got a minute. We'll, we'll try and squeeze this one in. Everybody sent him his name Neil, if you notice this. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, it's a big week for Neil. So. Okay. Um, he says, hey, Terry, a thought on Emmanuel Classe's difficulties this year. I think hitters are looking for location down and outside early in the count. Regardless of his velocity, big league hitters are going to hit what they're looking for. Where is the letter high heat? Why isn't he standing hitters up more? Hitters have been a step ahead of him all year. He needs to adjust. What do you think, Terry? I think I haven't thought of that, and I think he's right. Absolutely. Because they've been getting a lot of hits to right field on him, especially the right-handed hitters. I have had a feeling of, why don't you just bust these guys on the fist And right now? I'm not talking about um, knocking them down or anything. Just Nobody likes a fastball on the fist with a wood bat. You just don't. And so I I agree. I think that's that's a, that's a good thing. What has happened with Emmanuel is that cutter and that he's got so used to the fact that he could have so much success throwing that ball on the low and outside corner that um, I think he just got in the habit of doing it, doing it, even sometimes when the target's inside. So good job on that. Yeah, I, I think his velocity on his fastball is down a little bit. And I think you're right, Terry. He might be – he throws that cutter a lot. And yep. Maybe he is over-relying on it. I think that might be a good point. So Get um, – break some bats. Yeah. We haven't seen him break many bats all year no, compared I mean, to a year they, ago, I don't they think don't, so. They do do it. They, they don't like that stuff in on their hands. They just don't. And by the way, another Earl Weaver thing. You know, Weaver was very much against uh, throwing – uh, knocking a guy down with a, a pitch that's high around the shoulders or head, because I think he had been beaned in the minors a couple of times when he played. So what do you say? He goes, throw it at their knees and watch them hit the dirt. He goes, they <laughs> hate pitches down around the knees. You, you, you throw one down there, you just low bridge them, down they go. He goes, and you watch them when they come in. And I'm like, I oh, never thought of that. And and granted, you can you know hurt a player there, but the risk is less than when you're throwing high, hard ones. Yeah. Another lost art. So, um, all right, Terry, I think that's going to do it again. If you want to hit us with an email sports at cleveland.com, put Terry's talking or Hey Terry in the subject line, anything else you want to get into here? I think that's it. 
All right. So next week, I think we're going to have to make our Browns season predictions. Mm. Be, ready, be ready for that. I will be ready for that. Now they all have right. the kicker, so I think all problems are solved. The roster is set. They have a kicker, and so we have no excuses not to make pr- predictions That's anymore right. this season. So, And we'd love to hear from any uh, Browns fans out there who'd like to send us their prediction. We'll read some of those next week. Again, sports at cleveland.com. Thanks for listening, everybody. We are really um, just glad to be part of this, and thank you for all the support you've given us. We'll catch you next week on Terry's Talking.